0: This is VLX number 141. The love of many will grow cold. We are in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. VLX stands for Video Lectio Divina, the Patristic Bible Study and Ignatian Prayer Series online. God give you his peace. In Omni Patri Sifidi, et Spiritu Santi. Amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine Pachi Sifiri et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And then the end will come. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. So if you're listening to this in real time, we just started Advent. And as you know, Advent isn't just the expectation and the celebration of the first coming of Jesus in the the Nativity, the coming of Jesus Christ through the Blessed Virgin Mary, when he comes to us to be our Savior. Advent is also the time that we meditate on his second coming when he comes not in mercy, but in justice. And so it's providential that today's gospel from Matthew 24 tells us what to look for at the end of the ages, at the end of our time on earth, that is. Now, a lot of people will always quote our Lord saying, you know not the hour or the time when he will come in glory. But that doesn't mean he didn't give us signs. In fact, that is what today's gospel is about, is He is giving us numerous signs what the end of the world is going to look like, and not only what the end of the world is going to look like, what is going to lead up immediately to the end of the world. And so we have physical things like wars, famines, and earthquakes, but we also have the interior life of people will change. That's why I called this uh, podcast, The Love of Many Will Grow Cold. I think that's the most chilling, no pun intended, of all the things that we're going to see at the end of the world, is the love of many will grow cold. We hear today that many will fall away and betray one another. Anybody following not only Catholic news, but even traditional news. We see uh, not only liberal Catholics betraying conservative Catholics and conservative Catholics betraying traditional Catholics, we even see traditional Catholics betraying traditional Catholics all the time. And so the interior life of what will happen at the end of the world seems to be happening. Now, I'm not saying I know when the end of the world is going to come, but we do have a checklist, and I don't know if we've fully checked off all the 10 or 15 things today in Matthew 24, but we've checked off over, the, over 50% of them, I think. And so as we go through this, I'm not going to make any guesses when Jesus comes in glory. But I do encourage you to compare this to the 4th century, or the 8th century, or the 13th century, or the 17th century. And there's no way that you can say, as you look at today's gospel, that it's always been this way. Of course, there's always been Christians in every single century being killed for the faith, But there are new things that are on the scene only the past hundred years that we have to consider as we prepare, not just this advent for the first coming of Jesus in mercy, but his final coming in glory. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem, even today you can see a lot of tombs not too far from the Mount of Olives where today's gospel takes place. There's a lot of Jews that are buried there and their feet are faced down the hill, and their heads are towards the upper part of the hill, and they are facing toward the Valley of Kidron. And one of the reasons why is because many of the Jews 2,000 years ago, and some even today, believed in the resurrection of the body. And so they wanted, when the Messiah returned, to be blasting out of their graves, facing east, as many graves even today in Jerusalem are. So when the Messiah came across the Valley of Kidron, their bodies would be resurrected. Uh, What is amazing about this, even though they don't recognize our Lord as a Messiah, is this is exactly where our Lord was led in a few days from today's gospel. This is where he was led the night of the Last Supper when he was arrested and taken into custody uh, the day before his crucifixion. He was actually led uh, across the Valley of Kidron exactly where um, they believe that the Messiah would come. Unfortunately, they don't recognize him. But today, since we haven't done the Ignatian mental prayer way in a little while, I want you to really imagine yourself in this beautiful spot, Mount of Olives. You are one of Jesus' closest disciples. It's this sunny, beautiful day, and you're sitting in the grass, facing east across the Valley of Kidron, right there on the Mount of Olives. And since we always want to set up the five senses in the Ignatian mental of prayer, this is how Father Lapide describes what was seen. He says, The disciples, therefore, being amazed at this desolation of so great a city, it means the coming desolation that was predicted today, show him the wonderful edifice of the temple, its beauty and magnificence, which seem worthy of lasting forever, in order that they might move Christ to pity and to revoke the sentence of destruction. For this temple was the wonder of the world. As Josephus says, Its exterior had everything for the mind and the eye to admire, the roof was entirely covered with very heavy gold plates at sunrise. It was seen from afar and with such a fiery splendor as to dazzle the eyes of the beholders as though they were gazing at the sun itself. So actually, now that I think about it, um, the Valley of Kidron is to the east of the um, Mount of Olives and then this temple is to the south of the west. So maybe as you set yourself up in the Ignatian mental way of prayer, sometimes you're looking east with Jesus towards the, uh, the beauty of this valley And then sometimes, as you're talking to him, you look south to this magnificent giant temple, which our Lord just predicted would be destroyed. But the real thing that I want you to um, experience as you place yourself there is the intimacy of friendship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, St. Ignatius of Loyola very much believed Jesus was God and Savior, he's not just our buddy. But once we adore him as God and Savior, There's a very important part of Ignatian spirituality where he is also your friend. I realize that word was hijacked by a lot of hippie Christians in the 70s, um, but you you really want to experience that Jesus is your best friend as you sit here in the uh, Mount of Olives, either looking east across the Kidron Valley or towards this magnificent temple with the gold plates. And because so many things are happening in church and state, I really want you to place yourself, in some sense, 2,000 years ago, with Jesus there on the uh, Mount of Olives, But in some sense, it's now. I want you to place yourself there so you can talk about your life and your family's life and your state's life and your church's life and your parish's life and all the things that are happening in the world, knowing that nothing happens outside the control of God and Jesus is God and he's your best friend. So it's it's such an intimate invitation or it's such an invitation to intimacy that we have today as you sit here if you like to do um, the uh, Ignatian mental prayer because... It's not just that we picture ourselves 2,000 years ago. We also do mental prayer. We also do the Ignatian way of prayer in the year that we actually exist because God had us born in this century for a reason, and he hasn't abandoned us. He wants to be our best friend and our protector and our guide all through the things that are happening in church and state. He hasn't abandoned us And this is where, as he tells us the things that we're going to see right before the end of the world, again, I don't know when the end of the world is going to come, but um, there's an intimacy for the final Christians to really meditate on this. And as I said, we seem to be checking off a lot of these things in Matthew 24. So perhaps the invitation to intimacy is greater now than it was in the 4th or 7th or 12th or 17th century. That's not true. Of course, God is always present to anybody in grace. But we do know where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's scripture for sure. So even if two sentences ago was was false, we do know where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so we have great reason to believe the final Christians, even as the love of most Christians grows cold, will be given extraordinary graces, perhaps never seen before. And St. Louis de Montfort talks about this. He does say the very final saints will be very apostolic and very Marian and they will um, preach the the gold of love everywhere they go. So that's an interesting juxtaposition. that St. Louis de Montfort says the final final saints will spread the gold of love everywhere they go with their preaching, and today our Lord says the love of many will grow cold. And those might be in the exact same generation. So this is one of those things you can ask our Lord, um, please increase my charity. I want to be those who love you and those who love my neighbor for the sake of you, even as the love of many around me goes, grows cold. Now, let's rewind just a little bit. Notice what I just read from Father Lapide there. It was almost humorous because Father Lapide just pointed out that the disciples thought they, quote, might move Christ to pity to revoke the sentence of destruction, end quote. In other words, what Father Lapide is saying is the disciples are trying to remind Jesus how glorious Jerusalem is and, hey, maybe this isn't the city to destroy, uh, But St. Augustine says a little bit later in Father Lapide, listen to this quote. It doesn't make a lot of sense, so I'm going to read it twice. He will not be a great man who thinks it much that wood and stone should fall and mortals die. Let me say that again. He will not be a great man who thinks it much that wood and stone should fall and mortals die. What Father Lapide is here saying is for the people that are truly concerned about their souls and staying in sanctifying grace... The fall of certain cities, Jerusalem or New York City or Washington, D.C. or Buenos Aires or Rome or Beijing or whatever, doesn't matter when they are looking at the state of not only the salvation of their own soul, but the souls of many other people. Of course, nuclear war really matters. We don't want nuclear war. But what St. Augustine and Father Lapide are here saying is, when you're really concerned about souls, cities don't matter as much. Why? Because cities don't last forever, and every single every single soul on this planet will live forever either either living forever in heaven or dying forever in hell. And this is where we really have to look at a lot of our own culture and say, am I more concerned about the external things that are happening in people's lives or the internal things that are happening? And so let's look at verses uh, 3 and 4 again. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Father Lapide points out that there's a twofold question, the end of Jerusalem and the end of the world. And we're going to look at both of those today, uh, quite a bit of Jerusalem towards the beginning of this podcast, but a lot of the end of the world towards the second half of this podcast as we get closer to verses 9 through 14, because that is all about the end of the world. So Jesus answers regarding both. He says, See that no one lead you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now let's stick on the visual before we look at what Father Lapide says about uh, the spirituality and the church fathers and everything else. Let's talk about the physical. When Jesus and the disciples are looking at the temple, we have to realize that most likely what is now called the Western Wall was not the temple. That was actually a garrison. Now, that, that's pretty shocking. I only learned this in the past year. But I'm going to quote you, Father, Father Lapide, quoting Josephus. He writes, Titus bid them utterly destroy the city and the temple. He's talking about what happened in 70 AD. Left standing, however, were the three towers, Phacelus, Hippicus, et Marimene, And that part of the wall of the city which defended it was on the west. This was done for the sake of the garrison which he, Titus, left. And the towers were allowed to stand in order to be a witness to posterity. How strongly fortified was the city which the valor of the Romans had captured. But the remainder of the fortifications they so completely leveled with the ground that persons who approached would scarcely have believed that the city had ever been inhabited." Now, what's amazing about that quote from Josephus is this comes from a nearly canonized 16th century Jesuit. And I earlier this year saw a video on the so-called Western Wall made by Protestants using this same quote. I'm going to link that in the show notes. I normally don't put up videos by Protestants, but this is seems to be very historically accurate because it's quoting the same quote from Josephus, if I remember correctly, that we have here in Lapidae. And the whole point of this is What is now called the Western Wall, believed to be also called the Wailing Wall, part of the temple, is in fact not part of the temple. It was never part of the temple. This was a garrison. It was a Roman garrison, left standing. Uh, You don't have to agree with me to keep doing this series, of course, but I'm going to put that in the uh, show notes because you might find it fascinating as far as the history of Jerusalem. Now, Let's look at Jesus sitting on Mount Olivet and uh, Father Lapide points to a synoptic gospel, a parallel gospel here, talking about what happens in Mark 13. And he speaks of four people who are there. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, who were on more intimate terms with Christ and admitted to his secrets. Now the reason why in verse 3 we just heard that word privately, and this is again why I'm having you really picture just you and maybe one or two friends, maybe your spouse and Jesus there in this intimacy, is because there's a couple reasons that was used. One is because this was apart from the multitudes, says Father Lapide. But Father Lapide also adds, The Syriac has between themselves and him, that is Christ. For it was dangerous to prophesy, indeed, even to speak about or ask about the destruction of the temple because of the scribes and the magistrates. It was on account of this that the Jews stoned St. Stephen. This is plain from Acts 6.14. So notice that what Father Lapide is saying here is that the uh, the temple was so sacred that that uh, what St. Stephen said in Acts 6 about the temple was enough to stone him. And this is one reason why Christ has to keep it secret. Now, we do have Father Lapide say at the beginning of this chapter, because keep in mind, we just started chapter 24. Father Lapidae said, "...Christ said these things while already ardently proceeding to his death on Tuesday after Palm Sunday when he was about to be crucified." So today, Matthew 24, is the Tuesday before Good Friday. But apparently, our Lord still has some things to say. And that is one reason, according to Father Lapide, why he's keeping it a little bit secret. And then we have this a little bit later, and Father Lapide says, For they, the disciples, suppose that these three things, namely the destruction of the city and the end of the world and the, end, and the day of judgment, would all take place at the same time. And then our Lord's going to make it clear those are not at the same time, or at least the fathers make it clear. Okay, let's look at verse 4. The Douay Dewey Rhymes Dewey reads this And Jesus answering said to them, Take heed that no one seduce you. The other video I'm going to put in the show notes is a video you've heard me speak of a lot called The Secret Still Silenced. I really believe getting to the bottom of the third secret of Fatima is the key to understanding why God has allowed all of this in the church. The past 100 years, especially the last 10 years, uh, spoiler, you've heard me say this before, the third secret is the apostasy of the Catholic Church, or of Catholics rather, of Catholics from the top down, meaning the hierarchy. The Catholic Church in her divine aspect can never apostatize, of course. But I really believe in that video, and it's lawyers who make the video uh, called The Secret Still Silence. Again, I'm going to put that in the show notes. It's very strong evidence of the apostasy from the top down, hierarchy departing from the faith, and this is why we have our Lord say that at the end of the world, you have to be so clear, so sure, that no one seduce you. Verse 5, For many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and he will seduce many. To many traditional Catholics, it really does seem like a new gospel was preached at Vatican II, and if a new gospel and a new religion take place of apostolic Catholicism, then Jesus' words are very apropos for us today. See that no man seduce you. Verse 6 reads, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Father Lapidre writes, These are often, he's talking about rumors of wars, rumors of wars are often more miserable than the battles themselves and more thoroughly torment the mind with the fear of disasters, even though they do not come. For as the saying goes, Worse than war is fear of war itself. Now, think about Ukraine and Israel versus Hamas the last uh, two years as you hear this line again. Worse than war is fear of war itself. Now, I don't doubt that uh, numerous people have died in the war between Russia and Ukraine. I pray for, for the deceased at my memento for the dead at Mass for them. Same on the two sides between Israel and Hamas. I pray for um, those who have uh, died on, uh, there's also Christians and Catholics dying in this conflict. So I'm not doubting that people are dying uh, in Ukraine or Gaza Strip. However, one of the things Western media has done over the last few years with these wars is greatly drum up and exaggerate the threat that is to the whole world. Now, I do believe once people push the big red button, then we're going to have billions of people vaporized, of course. So what I think is really unique about 2023 that wasn't around, say, a thousand years ago, is not only war, but the rumors of war are much more significant now and much more scary to people than things were a thousand years ago. How do we know this? Because we have more misinformation coming to us from the mainstream media than anything in the past ever happened to scare people. So... We hear of wars and rumors of wars, Ukraine, Israel, all this stuff. And the uh, fake side of all this really seems to be reflected in our Lord's words, rumors of wars. And our Lord says, see that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. And then verse seven, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now keep in mind that where our Lord went, so also the church must go. Just as where the head has gone through through his own crucifixion, so also his spouse, which is the church, must also go. And so Jesus the head is born into heaven. We talked about this in my RCT series in the Ascension. He the head is already birthed into heaven, but the church has to go through her own birth pains for the church to follow him and all the elect, into heaven. And so we know that uh, the church must be betrayed from within, for example. One of the things also that I noticed is very fascinating is that earthquakes will increase at the end of the world. And not to scare anybody, but I've been looking at secular resources recently saying that there have been many more earthquakes over the past hundred years than there was the past thousand years. And I just saw something in secular news talking about how Um, more volcanoes are exploding right now in the past year than they have seen in a very, very, very long time. So even some secular news outlets and certain science journals are talking about a great increase in earthquakes and volcanoes. Now, some people might say, well, this is just more of the fear-mongering to get people afraid, but I can't really find a motive in these science journals for simply talking about an increase in earthquakes and volcanoes. In other words, it really does seem to be scientific fact And I I realize people's allergy these days to the word science because it's just a new religion that really has nothing to do with science at all. But I am convinced as I look at this with pretty sober eyes, there is an increase in earthquakes and volcanoes all over the world. This is just the beginning of the birth pain, says our Lord. But as you listen, I want you to realize our Lord is going to match all of the troubles with an increase in faith, hope and charity for those final people. But if the point is to get the final elect to heaven, you might wonder, then why doesn't Jesus just give us the date, time, and hour, and year of when he's going to return in glory? Father Lapide writes this, he says, and he did it for this purpose, that the apostles and the faithful might always be in suspense and so carefully prepare, equip, and fortify themselves for both events. By both events, he meant the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. So notice, this is not a trick of our Lord, but he wants us to not know so that we increase constant vigilance at all times on exterior matters and looking for the end of the world because that will help safeguard our vigilance regarding interior matters like staying in sanctifying grace. Because if you look through the checklist, so to speak, that's my word of all the things that are going to happen at the end of the world in Matthew 24, and you see more and more things getting checked off the checklist, I'm not saying we're, we're all the way there, but as we see more and more things checked off the checklist it should increase your vigilance for the exterior matters like Jesus truly returning in glory when all of time stops and how do we prepare for that most certainly by making sure you're in sanctifying grace and going to frequent confession now one of the proofs that i believe we can believe our lord and his words on the end of the world besides the fact that he is god and besides the fact that the bible is inspired by the holy spirit that's really all you need but the uh, the facts of the extraordinary things that will happen at the end of the world is vindicated in history that we hear from people like Josephus and Eusebius on some of the things that did happen in Jerusalem between the Passion, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of the Temple in 70 AD. So I'm going to read this. This is going to be kind of our last section from today looking at the destruction of Jerusalem. The rest will be at the signs at the end of the world. And so I'd encourage you to listen closely to this next section because even though it happened in the first century, it's really amazing miracles that God gave this warning to Jerusalem after the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as if that wasn't enough to warn people uh, that, that our Lord's words were going to come true in the destruction of Jerusalem. We have Father Lapide write this. He says, again, this is what happened above Jerusalem and in Jerusalem right before its destruction. A dreadful comet in the shape of a sword hung over Jerusalem a whole year before its destruction. At the Passover, when the people were gathered together three hours after midnight, a light as bright as noonday shone for half an hour in the temple. Also, a bullock that was about to be offered in sacrifice brought forth a lamb. Also, the eastern gate of the temple, made of brass so heavy that it can hardly be closed by twenty men, opened of its own accord at the hour of midnight. Also, there was seen in the air the appearance of armies, chariots, and battles, Also, there was heard at Pentecost the voice of angels saying in the temple, Let us depart from here. Let me read that again. At Pentecost, they heard in the temple the voices of angels saying in the temple, Let us depart from here. And then finally, an ignorant man of the lower orders. Basically, he means a uh, blue-collar guy in the first century, and maybe just a homeless man named Jesus the son of Ananus. That's not our Lord, just it was a common name back then uh, in some circles began suddenly to cry aloud in Jerusalem, a voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and the temple, a voice against the bridegrooms and the brides, a voice against the whole people. And this he continued to cry, night and day without ceasing, perambulating all the streets of the city. This he did for seven years, crying with a dreadful voice, like one astonished woe-woe to Jerusalem, until at last, when when the city was besieged by Titus, As he was crying upon the wall with a louder voice than usual, Woe to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the people, and to myself. He, this homeless prophet, he was struck by a stone, hurled from one of the military engines of the besiegers, and killed. All these things you can see Josephus and Eusebius. Verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Father day says the meaning is this, they shall afflict and torment you then so much that you will seem to be given up and dedicated to tribulation. They will inflict various tortures upon you and all nations in all places shall persecute you as revilers of their gods, little g gods, and as preachers of a new God, Christ crucified. I think Father Lapidae, by the words dedicated to tribulation, he basically means it will almost seem like the last Christians are consecrated for torture, and, and the white martyrdom that we're seeing in the West, people losing their jobs and everything else. Verse 10 and 11, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, Father Lapide says that these false prophets will actually lead all these people astray, Quote, not by the strength of the seducers, but by the negligence of the seduced. That is a very strong line. Listen listen to what the final generation of Catholics or Christians are described as uh, here. That the false prophets will win many of the last group of Catholics, not by the strength of the seducers, but by the negligence of the seduced. Now, if you look at all the news in the Catholic Church right now, the very fact that all these heretics, even at the top of the Church, are not talking about really advanced christological errors they're talking about really aspects of the natural law like marriage between a man and a woman and there's still catholics with phds defending them and so sometimes i'll point out this person or that person to some friends saying maybe this person or that person could be the final antichrist i don't claim to know i really don't but just you know kicking around some ideas with friends and a lot of times someone will say oh ho oh, oh, ho no that person's not smart enough to be the antichrist but really The last generation of Catholics, it seems, this isn't my words, (laughs) this is Father Lapide's words, the last generation of Catholics may not be the smartest lot. Now, the final people, the the elect who actually stay strong, are going to be very full of supernatural faith and very full of supernatural hope and very full of supernatural charity. But again, Father Lapide writes, why these false prophets will have so much success, it's not by the strength of the seducers, but by the negligence of the seduced. That might be a little insight into the final group of lazy Catholics on the planet before our Lord returns. But don't think you're safe just because you're a traditional Catholic, because if you sit on your laurels too hardcore, you might forget what we just heard in verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Remember what I said at the beginning of this podcast, how astonishing it is to me how many trads are stabbing each other in the back constantly, that they are betraying one another and hating one another, The fact that we're seeing this in the Catholic world is not a good sign. And this leads us to verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Personally, I think that's the scariest of all the things we hear of earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The saddest has to be that the love of many will grow cold. We all saw this following the lockdowns and through the lockdowns how angry people have become at each other, especially in the United States, all over the world, but I notice it, especially in the United States. It means that they who formerly had a fervent love for Christ and Christians, when they see so many persecutions and afflictions of Christians, will cease to be warm, in fact, will grow cold. Their love, grown tepid, will turn into hatred and disgust. Christ foretells all these things, that he may strengthen believers with courage against all hardships and trials and make them firm, as an adamantine rock says Euthemius. So notice, if you are one of the Christians who's going to see the end of the world, you are not predestined to have your love grow cold, because Father Lapide just told us, Christ foretells all these things that he may strengthen believers with courage against all hardships and trials and make them firm as a rock. And so the reason we study this and the reason I have you at the foot of Jesus as you overlook the um, uh, either the temple or the Kidron Valley, as you sit on the Mount of Olives with him, is to discuss the things that are happening in your life, your family's life, your parish's life, your country's life, the church's life, everything that has is is affecting the ones that you love, and you ask him for an increase in faith and hope and charity. That as you see, Catholic betray Catholic, and people following false Christ's, that you don't ask in arrogance, but you ask in humility, and say, I could easily fall into this lack of love or follow these false prophets lord jesus please i believe help my unbelief i love but please increase my supernatural charity again father lapide christ foretells all these things that he may strengthen believers with courage so i don't know if we're the last generation of catholics on the planet but if we are we study these stuff these things so that we can be what saint louis of de montfort calls the greatest saints of all time verse 13 but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, many of you have friends who go to what they call a mega church. There's only one church, so it's really only a mega community. And I'm talking about Protestants because there's three main branches of Christianity: there's Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism. And under this branch called Protestantism includes like Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, emergent church, mega church, uh, all those things that are under that title Protestant. Even if they don't like the term Protestant, a lot of them call themselves non-denominationalists, but they're still Protestant. And for the most part, this isn't true across the board, because there's more and more Protestants looking at the Bible, realizing they cannot espouse a once-saved, always-saved theology. But most Protestants over the past 500 years, that's to say non-Catholics, non-Eastern Orthodox, most Protestants, be they Baptist or emergent church or non-Domers, have believed that as long as you make your altar call and give your life to Jesus, you cannot lose your salvation. That's false for a thousand reasons through the New Testament, One of those thousand reasons, one of those thousand verses in the New Testament to prove that you can, even as a Christian, even as a Catholic, lose your salvation after baptism, after giving your whole life to Christ. Both of which I suggest, by the way. I think every Catholic should be baptized. And I think, uh, well, that's the day that you become Catholic. And I think every Catholic should accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But if that were enough, our Lord would not have said this. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, a one-time... Altar call, giving your life to Jesus, is clearly not enough to be saved. If our Lord makes it clear, you must persevere in grace until the end to be saved. Okay, and then the last verse for today. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and and then the end will come. So there is some debate. I always point out that usually the fathers are unanimous on these things, but there is some debate as far as what is meant that the gospel, the Catholic Church, has to be preached to every nation before Jesus returns. Well, basically, I hold that means every nation, but not every single person. Father Lapidae writes, God will thereby make known unto all nations his providential care and love, in that he hath shut out no nation, however barbarous and impious, from faith in Christ, from grace and salvation, but hath loved all and cared for all, and hath called them at suitable times, and therefore hath omitted nothing which is needful for the salvation of all nations. From this prophecy of Christ, St. Jerome, Suarez, and many others teach that this will be a sure sign that the end of the world is imminent, namely the preaching of the gospel throughout the whole world in such a manner that the church shall be founded everywhere and shall have everywhere Christian members and clergy and church buildings and priests, However, Maldonatus and Franz Lucas deny this for they think Christ was only asserting that before the end of the world, the gospel had to be preached to all nations, but that it was uncertain whether the end of the world would occur immediately once the gospel is preached to them all. So I don't know where I land on that debate, but you can rewind about 60 seconds if you want to hear that again. And then one more quote from Father Lapide on this. Keep in mind that he wrote this about 150 years after Christopher Columbus and Vespucci. Lapini writes. Moreover, because we see that about 150 years ago a new world was discovered by the Spaniards, when Americus, whence the name America, Vespucci, and Christopher Columbus sailed to and opened up the West Indies, which constitute half the globe, and that the gospel has been propagated in almost every province of this new world, except for few regions of Australia hitherto unknown, we may gather that we may we are gradually approaching the end of the world. And by regions of Australia, I think he meant places like Papua New Guinea, which, interestingly enough, still have uh, people that have never heard of the gospel. Father Lapide continues, For of the rest of the globe, no part remains which has not, at some time or other, received the faith of Christ, except perhaps China. But even there, Nicholas Trigautius shows by certain proofs in Liber De Fide in China Propagata that there were formerly Christians and Christian churches the same thing is proved by the inscription, upon a, a stone, which has recently been discovered in China, which plainly testifies that the gospel was preached there by apostolic men. So what Father Lapide is here saying is that uh, even China had the gospel preached possibly in the first or second century, and that by the time he wrote this in, I think, the 17th century, even if every person hadn't heard the gospel, we know that's even the case today, pretty much every nation had heard the gospel by the 17th century, with a few exceptions that Father Lapide points out. And again, if you go back a few minutes, you can hear the debate among the fathers. Basically, it's will the Catholic Church be established with beautiful churches and solid clergy everywhere before Jesus returns, or will the basics of the gospel simply have been preached in every nation? And that seems to be unanswered by Lapide and the fathers, or at least it seems to be a debate. Please say in our Father for me, at Benedictio Deum Nepotentes, Pace Sophidi, at Spiritu Santi, Descendit superbos, at et Maniat et Semper, Amen.